All right, the book of Jeremiah, after our fun, uplifting, exciting messages from this morning that was so encouraging, um, we're going to well go back to the same chapter, which as we've already seen, it's not very encouraging and very complicated and raises more questions than anyone has any answers with. But we are in Jeremiah chapter 18. We dealt with some very serious subjects. Uh, we dealt with, uh, I'm going to read the first paragraph in the study guide again. Then I'm going to read a paragraph in uh, one of the commentaries. And then we'll, we'll read, we'll start working on reading what we covered this morning, just barely, just trying to put it back into context and kind of look at the major themes that we looked at and just see how far we can get. I don't know, we'll, we'll just see. But uh, remember, the study guide started with this wonderful paragraph, all right? Most of us have been in situations where we have witnessed poor leadership and thought things would be better if we were in control. We, could have to, we would have to admit, however, that in situations where we were in control, things didn't always turn out the way we hoped. The fact is, we're never in complete control of everything in our lives. The only one, who is in complete control of everything is God. And he is working out all things according to his good pleasure, which includes shaping people for his purpose. Now, they mean this to be uplifting and to be encouraging. And everybody should read this and go, oh, then that's so great. I'm going to leave church saying God is in control of everything. And that's great. But if you would take five seconds and say, God is in control of everything, and then the next time something horrible happens, you then kind of want to say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Maybe God is not in control of that. The fact that thousands of people starve to death every day in the world. Well, maybe God is not in control of that. Or you have to say, the reason these bad things happen to these people is because they're bad and they deserve it, which is what some Christians will try to answer. So once you start reading that, you know it's very complicated. If you put it in the context of Jeremiah, which is where this is supposed to be, it even becomes more problematic because you know that the people that Jeremiah is preaching to, Judah, Israel, that over and over and over, we know that they're disobeying. And so if God is in charge of everything and he's shaping people, then the obvious question should be, just shape them. Well, to obey. And then all the problems would be over and nobody has to die and nobody's body has to be strong. Bodies don't have to be strong across the the fields of of Judah. None of that has to happen, right? But we we don't have any good answers. And they don't even try to provide any good answers because they think it's all encouraging news. But it, it raises all kinds of questions. So we looked at that and that took us to where? Romans 9, which then, that is very, comp- that's not a trouble, that's not a, <laughs> there's nothing easy about Romans 9, right? Because we then find out, well, God is in charge, right? God is in control. And what does he do? He creates some people or basically forms some people for honor and some for, some basically for salvation and some for destruction. And look, I, I don't know what you do with that. I don't, and I, I know pe- preachers and teachers have tried to walk around it, through it. We, I, n- nobody, want, nobody has a good answer, and, 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 and you can pretend that you do, but it's troubling, and again, it's very troubling, even if you just remove it from the theoretical, or if you keep it in the theoretical, it's still troubling. 
If you take it from the theoretical and put it back in the context of Jeremiah, it's even more troubling because you're like, so these people basically were brought forth so that they could be destroyed so that God's wrath could be seen. And therefore, those who are going to be saved, his grace will be magnified. It's such a difficult concept. So we went through Romans 9. We all know the difficulties with that. Then we turn to Jeremiah chapter 18. All right? Jeremiah chapter 18. And we started reading this. First, the word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord saying. Now we stopped right there. And I started at the beginning of the sermon to deal with this. And then when we got to what verse? What verse did we stop with uh, this um, afternoon? 18. Yeah. Then said they, the people that Jeremiah's preached to, come let us devise devices against Jeremiah for the law shall not perish from the priest nor counsel from the wise nor the word from the prophet. Come let us smite him with the tongue and let us not give heed to any of his words. So I use this as an opportunity to have a very uncomfortable conversation, but one that has to be had over and over and over and over again, all right? The people versus Jeremiah. Now, we know Jeremiah is speaking what words? The words of God. So we would say Jeremiah is the true prophet. And there are others that we say are false prophets, and they're not speaking the word of God. However, the false prophets would say they're speaking the words of God. And the people would say they believe and know the word of God. And Jeremiah would say he knows the word of God. And you say, well, then who, who, do you, who has the word of God? How do you know? How do you know? How do you know who's preaching the word of God? How do you know? Yeah, yeah, we have, we have some. We have some that kept saying peace and that everything was going to be good. So we have some. But the question then rises, how do you know as an individual who's preaching the truth? Now, I, I, I just dealt with this in the last episode of Long Gospel because they dealt with this question because someone asked them, hey, how do you know who's preaching the truth? Their answer was pathetic and garbage because they don't have an answer. They were just like, well, you turn to the Bible. Well, which false teacher doesn't turn to the Bible? Everyone turns to the Bible. So how do you know who's preaching the truth? And does anybody have a good answer? Now, if we really boil it down, how do we know who's preaching the truth in reality? Not in theory, but in reality. How do we know who's preaching the truth in reality? In reality, the way we know who preaches the truth is whoever we think is preaching the truth whoever we agree with. That's how it works in reality, right? Agreed? The person you think is preaching the truth is the one you agree with, right? And the minute you don't agree with them, guess what magically happened? They're no longer preaching scripture. They're no longer preaching the gospel or whatever the accusation is going to be. They're, 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 they're no longer preaching the gospel. They're no longer doing this. They're no longer preaching this. And who made that great determination? The individual. So really, in practice, I'm not saying in theory. In theory, we would say, whoever is preaching according to the word of God. 
I test what they say with the scriptures. And we sound so sanctimonious and we sound so religious, but the reality is that's not how it works. The standard of who's preaching the word of God in practice is the individual sitting in the pew determines who is preaching the word of God based off what? whatever they want. It's not based on necessarily on learning. It's not necessarily based off study. It's not based off schooling. The person sitting in the pew says, nope, he's wrong. They will say it's because they studied the scripture or they read the scripture or they know the scripture or because while you were preaching, they looked up two verses and said, see, you're wrong, right? Whatever the case may be, they all of a sudden, you're wrong. But guess what? You're wrong and they are Right, but the one preaching will look at the one who just said they're wrong and say, you're wrong. So reality, what's the stan- what is really the standard? Self. Scriptures are not the standard. Self is the standard. And nobody wants to admit that. Nobody wants to admit that. But if someone disagrees with me, <laughs> all they're going to prove is what? My very argument, right? All you're going to do, because you're telling me I'm wrong, and I'll tell you you're wrong, who's really the standard? Now, in theory, what should be the standard? The Word of God. But you see how complicated that is, because everyone claims the preaching. And just think about this. Even in churches that believe in divine revelation, Even in a church where the pastor says, God gave me this message. God spoke to me. God said. Does that stop the people in the the, uh, pews from disagreeing? They still disagree. Isn't that insane? Like, how do you wrap your mind around that? If you you believe that God is speaking directly to people, and your pastor says, God gave me this message, in theory, you should not be able to do what? Question it. It doesn't even, like, how can Christians process that reality? If God gave him the message, so you, either you have to believe that God lied, that he's lying, that God didn't give him the message, and that now you know more than this, or you can claim that God spoke to you, and it's different than what he spoke to. It's total anarchy. Oh, same thing as Jeremiah. Yeah, he's actually gotten the words of God, divine revelation, and the people are listening. But the false prophets probably claimed, they, they may have claimed divine revelation, we don't know for sure. They, they, may have, they may have said, God sent me, God told me, but God tells Jeremiah, I haven't sent them. I, but then, why wouldn't he just then speak directly to the people and say, hey, I didn't send those. But he only speaks directly to... <laughs> Oh, do you not understand how maddening that is? If God is speaking to Jeremiah, just speak to all the people and resolve the problem how quickly? <laughs> yeah, well, because, because ultimately, you're right. Even if he spoke to the people, unless he gets rid of the depraved nature, the people would say, you're wrong, God. <laughs> they, would, they would tell God and don't, we know we would all do that. We would be like, God, are you sure? We're not so sure about your interpretation. Come on, we would, would we not? We, we know we would. We would be like, God, uh, I have read the Bible. You obviously have not. Okay, that, that's... 
I, maybe, who knows, man? It's just crazy. But so we spent a lot of time this morning on that because it's just so, but it, not only is it so frustrating, it, Christians always think that it's just an easy, just believe, just test what they preach with the Bible. What, do you think the people teaching didn't t- look to the Bible for their teaching? So they did. So the difference isn't, because it's always this attitude well, if they would just read their Bible, if they would just study their Bible. Obviously, they haven't read their Bible. That's what we always say about people we disagree with. But that's not the case, right? That's not the case. They've read it, they've studied it, and they came to a different conclusion than you. There's no easy answers with that, but it should bother everyone. This situation with Jeremiah should bother because we look at it and we look at the people and we're like, what's wrong with them? Why won't they listen to Jeremiah? But then any pastor could say, well, then why won't you listen to me? Well, no, nobody. See, if we turn it around that way, everybody's like, no, 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 no. That's, don't, you can't say that. You can't say that. Well, okay, then why do we even have pastors? Because the reality is, I, I, I'm, I'm right until when? Until I'm not. I'm right until you, until you decide I'm not. And it's just like, I, and does education matter? No. Study doesn't even matter. I could come up here with 17 notebooks and people be like, yeah, so who cares? Doesn't matter. And you're just like, I mean, it's, uh, that, that, that whole situation there drives me crazy. All right, so we went to the, the whole he has the word, and we, and we dealt with that. And then we got into the actual kind of parable here, right? It's another object lesson. And the object lesson is majorly troubling, is it not? Here we go. Here's the object lesson. It's a lesson that preachers love to preach because everybody thinks it's so simple. But anyone reading this should have some serious going like, I don't understand, right? Jeremiah 18.2, arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will cause thee to hear my words. Once again, it's more that, hey, he's getting the words of God. He's getting the words of God. Then I went down to the potter's house, and behold, he wrought a work on the wills. And the vessel that he made of clay was marred in the hand of the potter. Now, we started struggling here, right? Immediately, any good Bible student should be like, what is happening? I am so confused. Okay. We think it's fair to say that the potter is whom? God. The clay is whom? Judah, Israel. Right? We got to make sure we keep it with them first and foremost. All right? Okay. Now, there's, there comes the issue then. Who marred the clay? Now, Remember we said, we got to be careful because maybe this is not meant for us to ask that question. It's just giving us general information that while the potter was working, he found that the clay was messed up. Now, I will argue, no matter who the clay is, it's going to be found to be messed up. And why is all the clay marred? A sinful nature. Now, if you don't want to blame God for it, The only problem is, all we have to do is walk back to Genesis, and I can clearly show you it's God's fault. Even though we're not supposed to say that. Who created the clay? Who knew when he created the clay that that clay was going to fall into sin, and that all clay coming from the clay would be 
marred. God knew it. Not only did God know it, he created the very being, Satan, whom would rebel, whom he let into the garden to tempt the first quote-unquote clay, right? And knowing what was going to happen to the clay. And he did nothing to stop it. Once the clay was marred, he had a couple of options. What could he have done immediately? Destroy the clay. You may want to go ahead and get rid of the person who's causing the problem, Satan. Create more clay who doesn't have the sinful nature and and then you've gotten rid of the person who's going to tempt. Now, now, Now you're off to a better start. Wait, why, yeah, why even put the tree there in the front? I mean, right, the whole situation is a setup. There's no way to get around it, right? So then, so clearly, even if you don't want to say God didn't mar the clay, the clay marred itself, I will argue the clay was marred before the nation was ever formed. Why? Because nations are made up of, and all people are marred. Whoa, that's, my brain hurts even trying to process that. Does not yours? Right, so he finds that the clay is marred. Now, what does he do? He made it again. Now, it sounds like we, we feel confident. Remember, the study guide pointed this out. It doesn't feel like he threw away the clay. He just started reworking the clay. Now, that's important, for, 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 especially when it comes to biblical eschatology. If he threw away the clay and started over with new clay, you could argue that he got rid of Israel and then he replaced it with the church. But even if he replaced it with the church, it would be marred because it's made up of the same kinds of people, right? So no matter what. So he takes the marred clay and then he begins to make it, made it again, another vessel as seemed good to the potter to make it. Now it seems clear that the first, now in a round, I'm not saying this is perfect, but it sounds a little bit like Romans 9. One vessel is marred and made for dishonor, and another is made for good. There's a whole history of Israel that's marred and going to be destroyed, but there's going to be an Israel that will be saved. Now, if we leave it, again, I still like to leave it all to Israel as much as possible. We know Romans 9 did not completely let us go with that hypothesis, but we tried. All right. But continue. What else happens? Then the word of the Lord came to me saying, O house of Israel, cannot I do with you as this potter, saith the Lord? Behold, as the clay is in the potter's hand, so are ye in my hand, O house of Israel. Now, once again, any good Bible student should stop and start having meltdown, right? Well, wait a minute. If he can do anything he wants to the clay and you're in his hands, then why did it get marred in the first place? And why would you just remove whatever is marring them to start with? And what's the only thing, what's the only way to fix the clay from marring itself, if, even if you put the blame on the clay? You've got to get rid of the sinful nature. Does he, get, does he eradicate the sinful nature? No. Next verse. At what instance I shall speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to pluck up and to pull down and to destroy? If that nation against whom I have pronounced turn from their evil, I will repent of the evil that I thought to do unto them. Now this becomes maddening because once again, the solution seems to be 
on them. You do the right thing and then everything will be good. In fact, this commentary I have here, look exactly how they describe it. And it's so maddening, all right? Individual, now they forget Israel, of course. They start off with individual believers are God's vessels. But the reference, okay, well, they do, they do correct themselves. But the reference here is to the nation of Israel. That's good. A chosen vessel to bring God's blessing to the world. Romans 9 tells what God put into the vessel. Many times in her history, when the nation would not yield to God, he made her again. She was marred, but still in his hands. She was marred, but had potential. Okay, I don't know about that. Okay, but all right. She was marred, and he made her again. Now listen, are you ready for this? Here we go. Listen to this last sentence. He will do the same for anyone who yields to his will. If I read that commentary, I would just just throw the thing in the trash and burn it. Is that of any hope to anybody? Hey, you're you're this marred vessel, but hey, God will remake you. He will make you new if you yield to him. Now, what should be the obvious question at that moment? How much do I have to yield? What does yield mean? Because yield would seem to be submit myself to God, surrender myself to God, yield myself to God. Well, is that 10% yielding, 20%, 50%? It would seem that what kind of yielding would God demand? Perfect yielding. Is anyone here perfectly yielded to God? Well, then I guess we'll never be made new. And my thing is, does Israel ever yield to God? No, so how are they going to be made new? Well, the best answer we can come up with is God's going to make a new covenant and he's going to take the marred clay and he's going to truly make them new, but God's going to do it himself and it's not going to be on their yielding to him. It's going to be God changing them. That's the only hope. Now, the only problem with that, and I look, I understand what this can lead to. Look, I'm, I'm the first one to admit that I, I can lead to going, well, then I can't do anything, so I'm just going to do whatever I want. I know that that's what we don't want it to turn into. But at the same time, we have to at least acknowledge we're never, and you can't put it on me. And if we're in the hands of God and he's the one doing the shaping and the forming, then it's on God, Right? Let's continue. Verse 9. And at what instant I shall speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to build and to plant, plant it? If, I, if it do evil in my sight, that it obey not my voice, and I will repent of the good. If it do evil in my sight, that it obey not my word, then I will repent of the good wherewith I, sh- I said I would benefit them. In other words, hey, if you, if you do good, then hey, I won't destroy you, but if you, if you stop doing bad or if you continue to do bad, then I'm not going to do the good things I promised you, right? Either way, basically, it's, it's, it's law, 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 right? You do bad, you're going to be punished and I'm not going to do good things for you, right? And if you do good, then I will repent of the bad that I was going to do. Well, they only, that sounds so good, but the problem is, 
They, they can't. Nobody can. Next verse. Verse 11. Now, therefore, go to speak to the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying, Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I frame evil against you and devise a device against you. Return ye now everyone from his evil way and make your way and your doings good. And they said, there is no hope. Now, remember, I, I cannot stress this. I try, I repeated to myself 50 times this morning. Verse 12 is what every Christian should say every time they hear the law preached. Whenever you hear the law preached, your response to the law should be, there is no hope. I will walk after my own devices and will every one of us or myself will do the imaginations of his evil heart. That's what every Christian should say when they hear the law. When the law is preached, you should say, there is no hope. I'm going to walk after my devices and my evil heart. Now you tell any Christian friend you have that and they will tell you that is wrong and that is not true that because you can do it because Christ has given you the power to do it. And then they will turn around and say, but you can't do it perfectly. Well, if I can't do it perfectly, that means there is no hope. And that means obviously in some way I'm still following my own devices. And obviously, in some way, I'm still following imaginations in my own heart. And I don't know why people who say you can, but you can't do it perfectly, can't understand how utterly foolish their perspective is. Either I can or I can't. And if I can't, then my actions cannot be used to prove my salvation. So what, when, once you realize there is no hope and once you admit that you're going to continue to go after your own devices and go after the imagination of your heart, then the only hope is someone else has to do it for me. And that's where the gospel comes in. And you said, you're right. There is no hope under the law. But the gospel says there is hope because Christ did it for you. Christ kept that law for you and now your hope is not in you or not what you can do should do may do possibly do do best do less go in the right direction and all the nonsense christians say my hope is that it is perfect it is finished and it is done in jesus christ i don't have to worry about it it is done now immediately when i say you don't have to worry about it then everyone starts going we have to do something Go ahead and do something. I just know your doing of something is still not going to be good enough. And if you think that that proves something, here, here, put it this way. What would you rather have to prove your salvation? What you do or what Christ did? Anybody think, thinks that they want to look to themselves to prove their salvation is an egotistical, narcissistic, insane person. Or, or they're a liar. I'm like, you go ahead. You go prove your salvation. Go prove it. 
Well, where's your proof? The finished work of Jesus Christ. Every command in scripture, he obeyed. He loved the Father with all his heart, mind, body, and soul. He loved his neighbor as himself. He was holy as God is holy. He was tempted in all points, yet without sin. Without holiness, no one sees God, and I say, amen. That is true. And where does my holiness come from? Christ. And how do I obtain it? Alone. Okay, come on, come on. Remember, we're, we're not Catholics. By faith, alone, alone, alone. Meaning, not by works. So if you say works prove salvation, I will say you're absolutely right. You show me your salvation by your flawed, filthy rags, and I will show you my salvation by the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. There is no hope under the law. There is no hope. There is no hope. So anytime you hear the law preached in a sermon or in scripture, and how do you know when you're hearing law? It tells you to do this. It tells you to do this. It tells you to do this. I'm going to see if I can find it really quick. I think someone posted this on YouTube under our teaching on law and gospel. See if I can find it. Because I keep emphasizing this and you may not, you may think, man, why? You know, why do you keep, uh, well, YouTube removed one of our messages. Okay, but that's always comforting. Okay, all right, uh, let's see here if I can find it. Okay, no, that's not the one I want. Let me see if I can find it. Because I think it's worth, worth hearing what they had to say. Because we may not realize how important this emphasis on this is, but it's important. Okay, here we go. Uh, This was on August the 4th. This teaching, speaking of our series on law and gospel, is the most important teaching I have received since someone shared the gospel with me and I got saved. I went into this series thinking I understood the difference between law and gospel for decades. But this will be a nice refreshing of what I've already knew. Boy, was I wrong. I got saved. I went to a charismatic church that taught you could lose your salvation. Without realizing it, I was slowly going back into the condemnation of the law with no escape. They said no escape, but very similar to no hope, right? When I finally left, I went to a church that taught you that you cannot lose your salvation. I felt freed. The only problem was they taught lordship salvation and the danger of false converts. Slowly but surely, I was going back under the condemnation of the law again with no, they used the word escape, but really they're citing Jeremiah, right? No hope. If there's no escape, there's no hope, right? Because I feared maybe I was one of those false converts and was never really saved to begin with. I started measuring my sins against other Christians, desperately hoping to prove I was a real Christian. Been there, done that. 
right? As long Because I could always measure myself against someone in specific areas, and I could always say, I am superior. I don't do that. Now, even if I didn't say it that way, I'd be like, well, I know I read my Bible more. I know I study more. I know I know more. I know I desire more. Right? So I, I understand how, how to do that. It wasn't just my sins I compared. I also compared my good deeds. I always, I always shared the gospel with a lot, a lot with unbelievers. So I thought, that's a good sign. I'm not a false convert, right? I hope, question mark. So there was a little bit of, I hope, I hope, I mean, maybe. But then I'd turn around and have a wicked, sinful thought. And I would live in a perpetual fear of whether I was really ever truly saved. This teaching series of Law and Gospel turned a 50,000 watt light bulb on above my head. It's the most freeing thing I've ever experienced since my salvation. It has actually changed the way I read my Bible. I've never distinguished between law verses and gospel verses before. As a born-again Christian, I was still living in fear, trying to define the validity of my salvation by using the law and ignoring the gospel. Instead of living in condemnation under the, instead of living in, in condemnation under the law, now the law truly sends me to the rest of the cross. The, the, that's a basic foundational teaching that I somehow allowed to get corrupted. Thanks for teaching me that law and gospel stands side by side, never to be mixed. It opened my eyes to how vital both are. But when you try to mix them together, all you'll end up with is condemnation with no escape. Sounds just like Jeremiah. There is no hope. It also made me aware of just how many Christians, including myself and Christian teachers, are sadly mixing the two together. I'm going to point everyone that will listen to me to this series. It is vital to understanding the entire Bible. Thank you. And then it says, they give their name, a grateful Christian whose cup is running over with joy today. So that is awesome. That's awesome. But it's sad. Because they went through the same journey. Any tr- any, that, you would think all Christians should go through that journey, but many Christians never go through that journey. You know why they never go on that journey? Because we convince ourselves that we can do it or that we're doing it. We convince ourselves, there must be a change. Yeah, but whatever change you think, it's not good enough. I don't know why Christians can't understand that. Do, are, do you think I'm saying, hey, don't worry about a change? I've never said that, right? Never said that. You should be worried about a change. And you know what you should be most worried about your change? Is it's not change enough. <laughs> That's what you should be worried about. Any change in me should only make me go, there is no hope because I keep returning to my own devices and the imaginations of my heart. That, I, will, I don't know how to get that across to people. But all, they can, all you get is, you're not preaching the gospel. You're antinomian. You're this. You're that. It's like, could you stop with condemning me and realize You are under the condemnation of God because your life doesn't meet God's holy standard. How about you worry about yourself instead of worrying about my teaching because what you should say is, 
there is no hope. It's, it's, it's kind of sad to, to, to think. I, I'm so happy that at least all of our work in law and gospel, I'm glad that someone realized, hey, this is actually a good thing you're doing. Like, I, it's good to hear that someone's like, man, because they got it. They got it. I wish we could all get it. Right? Well, I, I just, again, Jeremiah 18, 12. You should just, I, I would beg you, memorize that, write it down, put it in the front of your Bible, the back of your Bible, put it on your refrigerator, put it in, anytime you listen to a sermon, remember Jeremiah 18, 12. And you know what you should say sometimes when you're listening to a sermon? There is no hope. After this sermon, I'm going to walk after my own devices and I'm going to do the imagination of his evil heart. After every church service, you know what you should say when you leave? (laughs) Unless you've heard that Christ died for your sins, unless you hear the gospel, you know what you should say? There is no hope. And sometimes you need to leave church saying there is no hope. Sometimes you need to leave church knowing you're going to walk after your own devices. Sometimes you need to leave church knowing you're going to walk walk after the imagination of his evil heart. And you know what that despair should lead you to? Not trying harder, not doing better, not saying you're going to memorize more scripture, not that you're going to go to church more, but yeah, someone just pointed to it, the cross behind me. That's your only hope. And that hope is not in you. It's not what you're, how good you're going to do this week. You rest, in, and that's why that, that person said they're going to rest, in, you know, that they learn to rest in the gospel. That's the only thing. You're not going to find rest in your actions. All right, verse 13. Therefore, thus saith the Lord, ask ye now among the heathen who hath heard such things. The virgin of Israel hath done a very horrible thing. Like, in other words, guess what? Over and over and over, what does, God, what does the heathen know about God's people? That we fail. And I know that we're constantly taught, it's our job to make sure they don't see our sin. I do understand why we want to do that. But the impression we give them is when you become a Christian, then you'll stop sinning. And I, th- I know we have good intentions, but you know what all that really does? It actually corrupts the message. I'm not saying I should go, hey, hey, you know what I did last night? I was in Vegas and I hired three prostitutes. I'm not saying you should go tell everyone that. But you know what you should let them know is guess what? I'm a sinner just like you. And you know what you need? The gospel. You know what I need? The gospel. Because we will never be perfect, but Christ is. And our hope is in his perfection being imputed to our account. By alone. There we go. I always wait for the word alone, okay? That's the whole issue right there, right? Because anybody can say by faith, but if they they say by faith, and then they say, well, but you better be doing this and this and this, or it doesn't count. All right, well, that's, okay. Now look at verse 14. Will a man leave the snow of Lebanon, which cometh from the rock of the field? Or shall the cold flowing waters that come from another place be forsaken? And obvious answer is, why would you leave that wonderful stuff? Because you need water, right? That cold, refreshing water. 
Would you not want that cold, refreshing water? Yes. But we always forsake it because we, first, we go after our own devices and our own evil heart. Because my people hath forgotten me, they have burned incense to vanity. They have caused them to stumble in their ways from the ancient paths to walk in paths and away not cast up. To make their land desolate and a perpetual hissing, everyone that passeth thereby shall be astonished and wag his head. You know what that sounds like in verse 16? Sounds like the church of Corinth. Hey, there's things going on in your church that won't even be named by the people out there. And you say, well, how could it be that the people in the church are worse than the people outside the church? Because in the church or outside the church, we're all sinners and we violate God's law. The, what, the, what the sinners need to know is that we're sinners. That's what they need to know. And that, that we have to have the same thing they need. Verse 17, I will scatter them as with an east wind before the enemy. I will shoot them the back and not the face in the day of their calamity. Meaning God's like, I'm going to turn my back on you and you're going to suffer. Then said they, come and let, and look at how they respond to this message. And this is where we ended this morning. I know we just repeated a whole bunch, but that's okay. All right. We got 45 minutes. We're going to easily finish this chapter. Okay, here we go. Then said they, come, let us devise devices against Jeremiah. For the law shall not perish from the priest, nor counsel from the wise, nor the word from the prophet. Come, let us smite him with the tongue and let us not give heed to any of his words. Once again, we can get into the whole discussion. They won't listen to him preach the word. And why will they not listen to him preach the word? They think that they are. Right, they think they got words of wisdom. They think they've got the priest. They think they've got the prophets. Why would Jeremiah be better than all of those people? Right, I mean, they could quote a proverb. And the multitude of, uh, multitude of counselors, there is safety. They could even be quoting a proverb here, going, hey, Jeremiah is how many? One, I've got all of these. Give heed to me. O Lord, and hearken to the voice of them that contend with me. Shall evil be recompensed for good? For they have digged a pit for my soul. Remember that I stood before thee to speak good for them and to turn away thy wrath from them. What is happening starting in verse 19? What's happening starting in verse 19? Jeremiah starts crying out to God. He's a little bothered, is he not? He's a little confused. Why would he be confused? Well, God, I'm doing everything you tell me, and I don't know if you realize this, my ministry is trash, okay? Okay, nobody's coming to my church, okay? They're all going to the other church. Why am I even doing this? Verse 21, now how does he respond to the fact that everybody's going to a different church? Therefore, Deliver up their children to the famine and pour out their blood by the force of the sword. Okay, I don't, I don't pray that when people leave the church, just so that it, I don't pray that when people leave the church. But Jeremiah is not too happy that everyone's listening to everyone else, right? And so again, let's, re, I mean, look, 
not to make light of it because it's really serious, but at the same time, you can kind of, you can kind of understand his, his frustration, right? Lord, I keep, I keep preaching and preaching and preaching and preaching, and they will not listen. And so then what does he say? That, what's the word right there in verse 21? Therefore, deliver up their children to the famine and pour out their blood by the force of the sword. Let their wives be bereaved of their children and be widows. Let their men be put to death. Let their young men be slain by the sword in battle. I'm sorry, that's some frightening words for him to to pray. You may even be, you may even feel that he's wrong to say that. He's like, hey, those people who, who won't listen to me, those people who won't listen to my preaching, let their children be killed. That's, that's some, I don't know. How do you feel about that? that that's a good way. That's a good way of looking at it. You could argue this just shows that his heart is just as wicked as anybody else's. Others will say, no, this is righteous indignation. Oh, man, I, ooh, that's, that's scary because then a pastor could use that, right? Right? A pastor can say, they won't listen to my preaching. Okay, that's now in Jeremiah's case, he would say, Well, I know my preaching is right because I got it directly from God. But many preachers would say that they got their message directly from God. I, the whole thing is kind of frightening but there. Right. Oh, yeah, that's true. That is true. That, it is very selfish. It is very selfish. Do you see that? That's, that's a good point. Everyone see that? Right? Shall evil be recompensed for good, for they have digged a pit for my soul. Remember that I stood before thee to speak good for them, and they turn away thy wrath, and, and to turn away thy wrath from them. In other words, hey, I tried to help them out. But it's really self-centered, is it not? I mean, I don't know how you want to interpret this. Most preachers, I think, will interpret this as just... He's doing the right thing in his action. His, I just, I'm a little concerned. I don't know. I don't know about that because it can lead to a lot. But man, that, that's, verse 21, that's a pretty frightening verse, is it not? Then verse 22, let a cry be heard from their houses when thou shalt bring a troop suddenly upon them for they have digged a pit to take me and hit snares for my feet. He's all upset. Hey, let them suffer for what they did to me. He's not saying, let them suffer for what they did to you. Is that? Man, I don't know. Does it say anything else? Yet, Lord, thou knowest all their counsel against me to slay me. Forgive not their iniquity, neither blot out their sin from thy sight, but let them be overthrown before thee. Deal thus with them in the time of thine anger. Wow. He doesn't even want their sins to be forgiven. He wants them condemned in the present and in, and you could almost say in eternity. In a roundabout way, what is he saying? Kill them now and basically let them go to hell. Now, I know their understanding of hell would not be what we understand it from a New Testament perspective, but I'm just saying, he's just like, don't forgive them. So, how, what do you think? Do you think his, his words here are good? What do you think? How do you judge them? 
His words start where? What verse? 19. I don't think this commentary, yeah, this commentary skips it. (laughs) This commentary is like, nah, we're not going to talk about that one. Let's see if this commentary handles it. What do you think? What do you think? You think they can handle it? Nope, they skip it. <laughs> Let, let's see if my let's see if uh, my study Bible handles it. What do you think? Do you think they do you think they mention it? What do you think? Okay. Oh wait, here we go. They do they do mention it. Here they go. Let's see what they say. This is another of Jeremiah's confessions. Um, his accuser said, "Come, let us smite him with tongue." Jeremiah ch- uh, charged the opponents with. Uh, with the following, number one, paying no attention to any of his words, digging a pit for him, hinder, uh, uh, hiding snares for his feet, and planning to slay him. And that's it. They don't, they don't deal with it. Uh, I, I don't, this may be the strongest. I, I mean, he's definitely had some words before, and he has definitely said basically let him die, but these words may be the, maybe some of the strongest, or at least they jump out at me in this case, because you have just such a clear progression of thought, right? He preaches this message about the potter and the clay and all this, then immediately they're like, nope! We want him gone, and then immediately he goes running to God and says, God, you get rid of him. So I think maybe it's the full, it puts it in a fuller context. So let's just, we'll just do this for, because there's no way, I don't want to start the next chapter now. So let's just do this. Just your own personal opinion. How do you read those words by Jeremiah? Do you see them as a good thing or do you see them as a bad thing? Yeah, it's very real. We, we definitely call him the weeping prophet, and we see the reality. But I, what I, what I kind of love about this is, is now I'm going to step back. I, don't, I, I personally see it as disturbing in that he, 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 his humanity, his depravity is coming out. And you can understand. You, 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 you try, I mean, just think of it from a human perspective, right? Just think of it from a human perspective. How frustrated do you get when your kids don't listen? Anybody ever teach school? How does it go when the students don't listen and don't get it? Do you start calling down fire from heaven to burn them up on the way home? Okay, right? Uh, Okay, right. Okay, right. You get angry, right? Okay. As a pastor, I never get angry because I have the spirit of Christ and I always am humble. I'm like, you know, uh, Lord, just be patient with these people because they, they are, you know, they're doing the best they can, and I understand, and I'm just like them. Does that sound like me? Well, well that's not nice, okay? All right. The point is, we've all can feel this to some degree. We, it, it, it's way too close to our, our own depravity. So I'm going to have a hard time going, this is just righteous indignation, because this, righteous indignation is usually we're upset for what someone has done to God. He's upset for what people have done to him. There's no way to get around it. Maybe we could say righteous indignation, right? But here, <laughs> there's no way here. So, but here's what I want to do with it. I want to do something different with it. What I love about this is the people of Judah clearly... There is no hope. 
because they continue to follow their own devices and the wickedness of their own heart. And even the one preaching can't even preach this without he wants to turn to his own heart and his own feelings because he can't get away from them because the one being preached to and the one doing the preaching are both sinners where there is no hope under the law. They all will go after their own devices and they will all follow the wickedness of their own heart. We see in Jeremiah and a roundabout way, a glimpse of the same depravity that's in the people he's preaching against. Now, I know most preachers will argue against this all day and say Jeremiah is righteous here. He is godly here. But I just want you to know how dangerous that could be, right? Because then any pastor who believes he's preaching scripture could say, they won't listen, let their children die. Now, no pastor would say that, but if you're saying Jeremiah is right to say it, That, yeah, I mean, that's a, dangerous, that's a dangerous path to be on, right? Like, I'm just saying you're just one step away from being able to justify your own anger, right? So I, just, I think it's a beautiful picture that, guess what? There is no hope under the law. Because under the law, we will all do what? Our own devices and our own evil heart. I cannot, that's Jeremiah 18, what verse? 12. Please just... Write it down, memorize it, read it all week, because that, and every time you see the law, that's what you should just say. That's the case. That's the case. And what's the, what's the only thing to combat? You going after your own devices and you going after the evil of your own heart. Well, there's only a couple ways to fix it, right? Number one, God would have to eradicate the old nature, then that would go away. But clearly God doesn't eradicate the old nature. So that is never going away until glorification. So in the meantime, what is my only hope? What Christ did and that righteousness. Now, should I go after the devices of my own heart? No. Should I go after the evil of my own heart? No. Should I fight against it? Yes. Should I feel guilty when I don't? Yes. But we at the same time, we, we, I hate to say this, because I know it, it leads some people just to become comfortable, right? Some people just kind of like, yeah, whatever, you know, just say whatever, do whatever. They, they, they don't, you know, maybe they just don't care. I understand the danger there. But at the same time, this is a hard thing to accept. But we have to at least accept this. And I know it's dangerous to say it. But if I don't say this, I feel like I'm not being fair. For every sin you fight against, and you gain victory over, say, supposedly five sins. In many cases, you only gain victory over the sin externally. You still may be sinning internally. And for the five that you supposedly have victory over, there's probably 50 more that you don't have victory over. So then we start trying to see, look at me, look at me, look at me, look at me. But it's like, you don't really want God's law to look at you. Because no matter how good you think you are, no matter how much supposed victory you are experiencing, you're still not close to what God's law demands, which is perfection, personal, perfect, right? Thought, word, desire, feeling. 
internal, external, actual, exact. All of those words that's used and said the London Baptist and other things. It's got to be perpetual. You're never going to be there. And I know that's like, that from a human perspective, then your, your attitude is then what? Well, then what's the point? And I do understand that. Obviously, all you can do is run to Christ, but at the same time, we still have to try to hopefully pursue righteousness in, in, in a practical way and fight against it. We have, I mean, the Christian life is the never-ending, impossible task of trying to live out practically what is true positionally. Positionally, I'm a new creature. The old is gone, all is new. Pra- in practice, I'm an old creature with an old nature. And so we try to live out and practice what is true positionally. But no matter how much we try, we're never going to get there. And I know, I, I, I know that's a defeatist attitude. That's why Macar- that MacArthur hates that defeatist attitude. Pelagius hated that defeatist attitude. That he got mad at, at uh, you know, Augustine's prayer. Because Augustine was like, God, you've got to grant me what you command. And Augustine was like, how dare? He doesn't have to grant you what he commands. Because you can do what he commands. Well... Way to go, Pelagius, yeah. Because obviously, I mean, I don't know if he said it with those, that kind of anger, but the point is, you can't. You can't. All right. We finished Jeremiah 18. Jeremiah 19, we go, he's going to have to buy a bottle. Okay? And then he's going to break it. Right, so... The object lessons continue. We'll see if we can get to that Wednesday. All right, let's pray. Lord God, we come before you this evening. Lord, if there's anything we take away from tonight, is that, Lord, there is no hope under the law. We are guilty, and we will always be guilty. Our only hope is in what you have done through your son, Jesus Christ, who kept it for us, who died for us. And by faith, his obedience is given to us imputed to us. And Lord, we, all we can do is be rest in that, be grateful for that, be thankful for that. And because of the gratitude of that, try to pursue you in any way that we can, no matter how frail that attempt may be. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said,